I'm now going to say words that some of you never thought you would hear. This is the last sermon in the book of Luke. Don't cheer for that. Whoever did that? Uh, I don't know. We're upwards of 80 sermons in Luke over parts of four years. And we saw some amazing themes, I think, over time. One is, well, God's acting in history to redeem a people. We saw the theme that says the kingdom of God has come really, but not yet fully. Already, but not yet. That's the theme we've been exploring for parts of four years. So we've been in Luke 2018, 19, 20, and 21. Not that whole time, but over several weeks during that time. We saw the theme of prayer, the power, the privilege of prayer, what it means to be a son or daughter of God and call out to him and how he voluntarily binds himself to the prayers of his people if we're working in this world, the power of prayer. We saw this theme of the nations, that Jesus isn't just a Messiah for the Jewish people. He's a Messiah and a Savior for people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So he is creating an international, multinational, multicultural family, whatever our nationality happens to be. We saw this theme that Jesus uh, is a seeking God, going after the lost, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, the lost rich man in Zacchaeus. And that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. But if you remember how all of this began, and I don't necessarily expect you to, it's back because it was back in December of 2018. We saw these words from Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. And he said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, you're going to have a son. His name is Jesus, which means the Lord saves. He will be the Messiah. He will reign as king. And when he begins to reign, at the beginning of that reign, it will be a reign that never ends. He will reign over the throne of Jacob, and yes, over every throne, it will be a reign that never ends, a kingdom that never ends ends. And so you know the story. The teaching ministry happens. First, God takes on flesh. He becomes truly man. So a couple of big words here. Incarnation. He takes Jesus, second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh, becomes truly human. Incarnation. He he lives his life. He lives perfectly. He loves perfectly. He teaches for three years, and then he is crucified. So the second word is crucifixion. He goes to the cross taking the judgment for our sin that is duly ours. And it crushes him. So incarnation, crucifixion. After three days, God raises him from the dead. A true human breaks the power of death. That word is resurrection. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. And then 
after 40 days, and by the way, there's about 40 days between verse um, 49 and 50 in this passage that Teresa read from Luke. Other gospel writers and Paul fill that in for us. 40 days he teaches and appears to 400, 500 people. And then God, and then he uh, ascends into heaven. And that's what we're looking at today, the ascension, the ascension, where Jesus returns to heaven. And here we got to like do a lot of rehab work. This is probably one of the most misunderstood doctrines or teachings about Jesus, one of the least appreciated, I think, teachings about Jesus. And we got to overcome a lot of children's Bibles and medieval art. Because when we think of the ascension, what most of us think about, just like this, default is like Jesus goes straight up in the air and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and he a little dot, and he disappears like some first century space traveler. Just psh, gone. Uh, I guess it's easy to paint a picture like that or something. I don't know. Um, here's a problem that is not how the first century Jews thought about heaven. <laughs> they considered heaven to be God's space, which was everywhere. Right, the, the, the space outside your fingertips. That is heaven. Now, we, they, there is a con- communication of like going up, but like when you move up in the world, right? If you're like, you, you know, you, when you were 20 and now you're 35, say, I've moved up in the world. It doesn't mean you've moved on to a mountain, right? There's a sense of like moving up. There's a metaphorical use of up that uh, ascend that the first century Jews used. And this, the word for ascension is what is used for a king ascending the steps to his throne. That's the word anabino, means ascension, means to go up as to go up to a throne. And so, yeah, the Jews thought about heaven as more, they didn't have this language. Is this heresy? This is probably not heresy, but um, like we have language in theoretical physics now about dimensionality, right? Where um, object relations are more relational than permanent. Einstein, whatever. That, that's the end of my physics major right there. Um, but, like, we have a sense, like, there's, oh, there's other dimensions, and we, we think we can actually prove this through theoretical physics. That's interesting. That's more of what the kingdom of heaven appeared to. It says an, another dimension. I'm not saying the Bible says that, just like it's an analogy, right? Uh, but this idea of this Messiah going up to the throne is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. So Psalm 110, I put this in your insert here. Psalm 110, this is uh, King David. The Lord says to my Lord, now David's saying, the Lord says to my Lord. So David's anticipating a Lord of his, which would be the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer them free, themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. So David's saying, I see this by the power of the Spirit. I see this day when the Messiah will take the, the, the right hand, the executive seat of power, and he will rule in such a way that there's, there's enemies all around that don't want this rule, but those who are his people will offer themselves freely. What does that mean? That those connected to the Messiah will see his beauty and his glory and his authority and his power and will say, how can I not serve him? Even though there might be enemies who don't want that rule and authority all around. That was, and, and these 
of his people will be in holy garments. That's how the Apostle Paul talks about the righteousness of Christ, by the way, for the people of God united to him. So this picture is one day the Messiah will reign, and I'm sure David didn't get this fully, but like there will be enemies who don't want this reign, but there will be his people who serve him freely, because not because he's making them do it, because, but because they're saying, how can I not? He's so beautiful and glorious and awesome. That's Psalm 110. A couple of hundred years later in Daniel 7, also in your insert, Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is another picture of the Messiah taking the throne and coming to the ancient of days. We would say that's the first person of the Trinity. And receiving, after he's done this work, receiving this kingdom that will never, ever end. And it's comprised of people that, from all different shapes, sizes, colors, nations, and centuries. This is the picture. And when we see clouds, I think, you know, when you see a cloud often in the Scripture and you have this biblical vision, you probably should think back to the Exodus. When God leads his people in a cloud by day, and anybody know what he led them by, by night? Pillar of fire. Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. So apparently the cloud turns to a pillar of fire about sunset. But the presence of God, we, the theologians call this the glory cloud, would lead his people. And here's this picture of this cloud, probably a glory cloud, in which that signifies the presence of God, in which the Son of Man, which is D- Jesus' designation, comes and, and takes this authority seat of power. So this is all what's happening in the ascension here. Uh, I know this is a lot of background for this, but um, there's only like three verses I had to work with today, so we've got to do a lot of background work here. Um, Then to turn to Acts chapter 1. This is the last piece of background. If you remember, Luke wrote two books. One's the Gospel of Luke. The second is the book of Acts. They used to be together in the canon. Somehow they got separated. Not sure how that happened. But in the beginning of Acts, Luke recaps the end of Luke 24, to prepare for the book of Acts. And he, you know, he, he recaps it and gives some other details. So here we go, Luke, or Acts 1, verse 6. When they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. There's a cloud there again. You have a cloud that follows the glory presence that follows the people of Israel in the Exodus. You have Daniel 7, this cloud. You have this cloud here. But this is not the first time you've seen the cloud in the book of Luke, in the writings of Luke. This, this rewards faithful readers. Back in Luke chapter 9 at the transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on the mountain, and his glory is revealed to them. And if you remember what happens, a cloud overshadows them and takes Moses and Elijah away. The same glory cloud. So 
So that's the picture there, Jesus' ascension. So he goes up in some way, but like you're looking up at me right now. Not that I'm ascending a throne, but if I were, I would be about this higher, a little bit higher. You would be looking up at me. So I think that's a bigger picture. This glory cloud envelops Jesus and he comes away rather than like space traveler. I think that's just... The space traveler thing, uh, it just doesn't make sense of the New Testament world. Um, And so this glory cloud envelops Jesus. He ascends to his rightful throne in the heavenly realm. And I want to show you one more thing. This is a little bit of a nerd out thing, but uh, verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven... As he went, behold, two men stood uh, by them in white robes. And we said a few weeks ago, that might be Moses and Elijah. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken in from you into, the heaven, into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So like anytime you got the phrase like into heaven, into heaven, into heaven, into heaven, repeated four times, like what's somebody doing here? Jesus is going into heaven, into heaven, into heaven, into heaven. He will come the same way. You might say, okay, what's the next time we hear this phrase heaven? That seems important, especially if you said he's going to come in the same way. Answer, right at the beginning of chapter 2, the very next chapter, check this out, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So, yes, it's talking about the final coming of Jesus, but in part, this is talking about Jesus returning in the power of the Spirit. Now, remember, two things that signified the presence of God in the Exodus. One was the cloud of uh, the cloud, and the second was the pillar of fire. What happens? A glory cloud takes Jesus and returns, and little pillars of fire appear over the 120 in the upper room. I just, I think that's cool. I don't know. Um, not necessarily related to the Ascension, other than Jesus ascended and then sent his spirit. Okay. Here's the big idea today. (laughs) Uh, In the ascension, Jesus brings us the challenge of the kingdom, the comfort, and the confidence of the kingdom. Challenge, comfort, confidence. Let's run through here. First of all, the challenge of the kingdom. We're working a bit against a bit of a caricature here. I don't know if you know what a, a caricature like. A caricature is like a cartoon. If you go to Six Flags and they'll paint your picture and they'll, they'll find one feature of your face and make it bigger than everything else, enough that your kids would know who it is. Oh, that's dad. Um, so there's a kind of a truth to it, but there's kind of a lie to it also. We have a caricature here of Jesus that we're fighting against in our sort of Christian teaching. And the caricature is something like this. Jesus came to be the Messiah, and the Jews thought he was going to be their actual, literal, real king. And the ascension teaches us that he's not the actual, literal, real king of the Jews. He's spiritual, and he can be the king of everybody's heart. He's the king of the heart of every people from all over the world. So the ascension teaches us that Jesus isn't the actual, literal, real king of the Jews. Really, he offers to be the king of everybody's heart. That is a caricature and untrue as it stands. The ascension teaches us this. Okay, Jesus is not the actual, literal, true king of the Jews only. He is the actual, literal, true king of every single language, tribe, tongue, nation, person, 
country, century, forever and ever. Should he be king of your heart? Well, of course. (laughs) That's way downstream of the reality that he is the absolute king of every single thing. And this is the way the scripture presents the ascension to us as a historical reality that happened that we must do something with. Last Wednesday, I was at a coffee shop with another pastor working through some strategery, some strategic things, several miles from my home. And Carmen, my wife, calls me. She works from home. She's like, honey, is it happening where you are too? I'm like, well, it's raining. She's like, we've lost two limbs, and the street is flooded, and it's I can hear it like behind her. It sounds like she's like in a a war zone, right? And I'm looking out. It's kind of raining where we are. Um, remember the storms from last Wednesday, right? If I said to her, well, sweetie, I just don't believe in the storm, she would be like, you're an idiot. There's a storm coming, and you must do something, right? Um, This is how Scripture presents the ascension. This is a historical reality about Jesus, like his incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, his ascension. And this this reality brings a, a challenge to us Because Jesus taking the throne indicates that his kingdom, this is the formal beginning of his kingdom. And it brings his kingdom into conflict with every other kingdom. Be that the kingdom of darkness or every other worldly kingdom that that, uh, assumes uh, authority over other people. In the first century, the the first Christian creed was something like this. Jesus is Lord means absolute authority. Why was that important for them? Because in the first century, they were required to heed this phrase, Caesar is Lord. And as long as somebody could say Caesar is Lord, they could have all these allegiances underneath that as long as they would say, and Caesar is ultimate above all these things. And the Christian had to say, that's the one thing we can never, ever say. There's nothing ultimate other than Jesus. Jesus is Lord. If, you can, if I can say Jesus is Lord, then I can have some honor and fidelity to Caesar and this thing and that thing. But there is one that must be ultimate, and every other thing that claims ultimate allegiance must bow to that. That's why Jesus was Lord. Jesus is Lord was the first Christian creed, because he's ascended to the throne and is the king of the universe. And many Christians lost their lives because they would not say, Caesar is Lord. It's an ultimate claim. So let me put a finer point on it for us here. Nothing else, no other claim to authority for a follower of Jesus can be allowed to be elevated over the reigning king who is Lord. Or we don't see him right. The Greek mythology, in Greek mythology, there's a, um, a character named Procrustes, who was the son of Poseidon, or the father of Poseidon? Son of Poseidon. Uh, he was an, an innkeeper. He had a, um, a house along his path. He'd let weary travelers come in for free, and he'd give them a nice hot meal and let them sleep in his bed. And his bed, he said, was a magic bed. It fit whoever slept in it. What he didn't tell them is when they got in the bed, he tied them down, either stretched them to fit the bed or cut off their feet so that if they were too long for the bed, right? And they always died. And so we have this phrase that's come to us called a Procrustean bed in, in, in English language, which means a, a, um, a scheme that you force something into. Um, we have a king who is also creator. 
who is an ancient king who creates us, who loves us, who knows how we're made, and he rules. We can allow, we can allow no other thing in our world to become a Procrustean bed into which we fit Jesus. Just imagine what we did if we did that from generation to generation. We either stretch him out or cut him off. Like we, Over time, we end up with a Jesus who's just not Jesus. So we can let no other authority... Authority be over the allegiance of Jesus. So in our culture, I'm going to put a finer point on it right now. We, we, we're often faced with saying either we have to sacrifice tenderness or truth. In Jesus, in G, you know, which one is Jesus? He's both. As the followers of Jesus, we must hold on to tenderness. We must hold on to truth. He's the ancient, eternal creator king. The whims and changes of culture don't change his will. Right? Just because when culture changes from year to year to year, that doesn't change the will of the king. Sometimes we just need a little historical perspective, right? We're in a mass, we're in the midst of major cultural upheaval on issues around human sexuality. Guys, that doesn't change the ancient will of the creator king. It just doesn't. I say, yeah, we don't want to be a jerk, right? We're tender and truthful. But God has spoken. God has spoken. If you, if you can find a theologian that has found these insights after 2,000 years of received history that make things totally different, uh, he or she is a heretic. Right? Just because culture is confused on what a man is and a woman is doesn't mean our ancient creator king is. Again, we're going to be truthful and tender. Just because it's fashionable not to love our enemies and assassinate them on, like, social media, it doesn't change the will of our king who calls us to love our enemies and give us and gives us the example of loving our enemies. Just because we live in a culture that says life is precious after a certain age doesn't change the will of our creator king. He's on the throne. Just because we live in a culture that doesn't value the, the reality that God is creating a multinational family that transcends national boundaries. First, first, you realize, right, our, our Iranian brothers and sisters in Christ are closer to us than other Americans who don't name the name of Christ. Do you understand that? I would say if you don't understand that, you don't have the real Jesus. Got to get there. Got to get there. Jesus has created a multinational family and died for them, and they are our brothers and sisters, right? So uh, we can't fit him into some Procrustean bed that says, this country first, this country first. So here's some Procrustean beds. Jesus is a Reformed theologian. I love Reformed theology. Jesus is not a Reformed theologian. That forces him into a Procrustean bed, and we lose part of him. Right? If you have Jesus as a Reformed theologian, you don't have the real Jesus. And I'm a PCA pastor. Some of you know what that means. Like, yes, I said that, okay? If you have, so I'm going to go a little bit stereotypical. If you have Jesus as a woke social justice warrior, you do not have the real Jesus. If you have Jesus as an American first libertarian, you do not have the real Jesus. If you have Jesus as a guru who helps you to evolve, helps us to evolve to become our true self, we don't have the real Jesus, right? Uh, if we have Jesus as a friend who affirms whatever we feel, we don't have the real Jesus. We might have a lot of things about Jesus. He might be a lot of things to us, but the one thing he is not is the ascended king. Right? So that, I, you say, that's challenging. Well, that's in my notes. It's challenging. It's a challenge of the kingdom, right? But it's also comforting. The Jesus in heaven 
I think one other caricature we wrestle with is Jesus sort of evaporates. Jesus is like, oh, when he goes down, he just evaporates. Jesus still has a true human body in the heavenly realm. This is the basic ascension theology 101. Now, he's unlimited, right, in the heavenly realm because of the way heaven and earth relate. But Jesus is, bears the marks of the cross in heaven. That is great news. This means the one, the one who has ascended in heaven on our behalf bears the, the marks in his body. He knows there's a physical reminder to Jesus of what it is to be, to be despised. Therefore, he knows how to help us. Who knows what it is to be shamed, therefore he knows how to help us. Who knows what it is to be sinned against, therefore when you're sinned against, he knows how to help you. This one in heaven is a human, truly human and truly God now. He knows how to help us as we run to him. That's the comfort of the kingdom. That's what we, in our call to worship, Hebrews 4.14. We don't have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, draw near to him. Run to the throne of grace. Why? Because he gives you mercy. Why? Because he knows how to do it. Are you struggling today? Are you hurting today? Are you smarting today from somebody sinning against you? Are you struggling with sin? Jesus knows what it is to push against sin and to resist temptation better than any of us because he always did it. He knows what it is to help us as we cry out to him. This is the hope of the, the ascension and the hope of Jesus, the kingdom. He knows what it is to help us when we run to him. His presence is comforting. In John 16, 7, he said, it's actually better that I go away because then the Holy Spirit will come. I will send my spirit. So Jesus ascends, and then he sends the spirit to dwell in his people. After the ascension, the Holy Spirit changes his name. Right? He's asked, that's not true, but he begins to be called the Spirit of Christ. Never before called the Spirit of Christ. But somehow in redemptive history at the ascension, the Holy Spirit now ministers the presence of Jesus Christ to us in a new and fresh way than he did before that. So we teach our kids, like we say, oh, Jesus lives in my heart. Then we get a little bit more sophisticated theologically and say, well, okay, maybe that's not true. Then we get more sophisticated, more sophisticated and say, actually, that's true. Jesus lives in your, in your life through the Spirit. Um, so we're comforted by his presence. We're also comforted by his absence. We're one day Christ will return to this earth and renew all things. That day is not yet today. That means things are not the way they ought to be yet. So when you look around and see things in your own life, when I see things in my own life or our world, and we just say, that's just not the way it ought to be, that should be comforting to you because that's true. And it means it's not the way it will always be either. Jesus' absence is strangely comforting to us because there will be a, a present presence eventually that will make all things new. And I just wonder how many things in our life, I'm trying to think about my own self, how many dumb things have I done because I can't stand the absence and want to lay hold of it and pull it close on my own? Like, you know, if you, we're, we're designed for work that is whole and satisfying, but because the, all things aren't renewed yet, every job kind of stinks in some way, you know? And often I sit down with guys, and they're like, ah, oh, Roger, you have a job you love. I'm like, yeah, 60% of the time. I think 40% of all work kind of stinks. 
probably most of you are in that, but 40 to 60%. should get it higher than 50 if you can, probably. But all work is incomplete. But the, the longing for that completeness, the longing for the, the not yet to become the already leads us to do things like, I'm going to chase this, I'm going to chase that, I'm going to move here, 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 here. I'm going to, yes, I'm going to work 45 hours. No, 50, 55, 60, 65. Oh, the kids will be fine later. All this kind of stuff and longing to lay hold of what's not yet that only comes when Jesus returns. We're designed for closeness and relationship, and with the desire to lay hold of that, we're willing to put up with all manner of chaos and ridiculousness in relationship. We're designed for a sense of a, a cohesion with ourselves, but sometimes we don't feel that. Therefore, we often chase that uh, through different means, be that alcohol, drugs, nicotine, whatever. Of, uh, I'm not saying that's all bad. Well, the drugs thing is probably bad, but like, but chasing that sense of focus or calm, or joy, right? How many things do we do just longing to lay hold of the the absence of Christ trying to pull it artificially close to us? Worship. I mean, worship, like we're always seeking the next spiritual high. We kind of move from church to church because, oh, I want that perfect teaching, and uh, he's not a good teacher, and, oh, I just, uh, worship is too old. It's too loud. It's too quiet. It's too whatever, We're built for worship, and in the renewal of all things, it will be whole and sweet. And right now, it's not. And so in in impatience, we try to pull that to ourselves. Challenge, comfort, and finally, confidence. Ooh, boy. Apologies to the people in the nursery today. We're a little long. Uh, Let me just, let me, actually, just let me make it cleaner. Confidence in our role. God's original plan was to rule the earth through his image bearers. And Adam and Eve chucked that to the curb for us. Jesus comes to the throne and sends his spirit so he can do that again. Rule the earth through love, kindness, acts of service of his image bearers. And that should give us confidence that we can speak words of the future, we can make announcements of witness. The way we use the word witness, we always we think about witness as sharing about our faith with somebody else. That's not how Jesus used the word witness. When Jesus said, go be my witness, he, said, he meant, go tell the world that I'm the true king. That's it. They I mean, they can respond to that however you want. Just like my wife say, honey, a storm's coming. You know, I, we're announcement of Jesus' kingship is what witnessing is. And finally, we can be confident of his role Psalm 110, his enemies are becoming a footstool. How is that? By his enemies becoming friends. Receiving the salvation that he offers. And just as a reminder of where we are in history, I know that if you on, on the news it seems all bad. Let me just give you a bigger a zone, a, a, a flyover. In A.D. 100, Roughly one in 360 people named the name of Christ as their leader. I don't know how many were actually Christians. I'm just saying one in 360 did. By the year A.D. 1000, so 900 years later, it was roughly one in 200. Almost cut in half in 1,000 years. By the year A.D. 2000, so 20 years ago, 21 years ago, It was one in three, guys. One in three. The Lord is on the move in this world. 
He is on his throne. He will not be dissuaded. Now, I know this, and one of the third people are not really Christians, but like they're naming the name of Christ as leader. That's astounding. Since 1960, the, the growth rate of Bible-believing Protestants has been roughly triple that of the world population growth. He's not going to be dissuaded, but he invites us into it. And we might say, yes, but what about, uh, isn't Islam a good, uh, strong competitor to what the Lord's doing in the world? And you say, yes, it is, actually. Um, but keep in mind, the way of the gospel is that his people serve him freely in the day of his power. The gospel invites people in. In general, I don't want to be too uh, broad brush, but in general, Islam requires it. <laughs> um, and even at that, uh, if you think about 30 years ago, Muslim families had 60% more kids than Christian families. And so a lot of the growth of Islam in the last 200 years has been through childbirth. That was 30 years ago. Now they have about 35% more. By 2050, it will be a wash. Right? Uh, as as uh, Islam westernizes, goes into Europe, the birth rate falls. Guys, a thousand years ago, it was one in 200 people named the name of Christ. Now it's one in three. That's breathtaking growth of the gospel in this world. Why? Jesus is on the throne. He's absent from us, yes, but he's present with us, yes, through his spirit. And one way we celebrate this present absence and absent presence with us each week is through the communion table. This, you say, well, Jesus isn't physically present with us. Yes, but in one way he is. That he comes and as we receive by faith, he becomes physically present to us spiritually through the bread and the wine. And if you're in Christ, we want to invite you to the table. We're going to go to the communion table and enjoy Jesus' presence with us. The way we do it here is um, if you're in Jesus, this is for you. I'm going to pray and invite you to go pick up uh, uh, bread and a cup from the stations. The red, uh, red juice is wine. The white juice is grape juice. Red wine, white grape juice. Grab it. Come back to your seat. And we will, uh, we will all partake together. Lord Jesus, Thank you for being present with us. Even though we sense your absence, we long for the fullness of it. As we come to the table now, we pray that you would shape our minds, shape our hearts to enjoy you more deeply. In your name we pray.